live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Welcome to Opera Box Score. Wherever you are, however you're listening, thanks for joining us. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by co-host Tobias Wright and Giovanna Jacques. We are America's talk radio show about opera, period. No one talks with you about opera week in, week out like we do. And what's more, in our show, you get to have your say live on the air. Call us, 847-866-WNUR. That's 847-866-9687. Or if you're the shy type, you can leave us a message 224-2189-BOX. Again, 224-218-9269. With us live in studio this hour is our guest co-host, Dr. Kevin Byrne, an assistant professor of dramaturgy from the University of Arizona. And we're going to get him to explain once and for all what a dramaturg actually does. The answer might surprise you. Then, on our Chalk Talk segment at the bottom of the hour, we sing Happy Birthday to the Met in HD broadcasts. And those turn 10 years old this month. But is that 10 years too many? Stick around to find out why some think the screenings of live opera in movie theaters should never have been born. Plus, at 9.45 p.m., we've got all your opera headlines in our two-minute drill segment, and Oliver has a tribute to Lorraine Hunt-Lieberson, who died 10 years ago. So, let's do this. We are live. No edits, no filters. Kickoff is next. Keep it locked right here, right now, on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, and Opera Box Score. Opera class, sports radio crass. This is Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Tobias Wright, and Giovanna Jacques. Let's go inside the huddle. Oh my goodness, do we have a show for you tonight. George Cedarquist here. It's WNUR 89.3 FM. It's Opera Box Score. It is Tobias Wright. I am here, and I'm excited. I've known Kevin, our guest tonight, for all of 44 seconds, and I already love him. (laughs) Before we get to him, let me introduce the lovely Giovanna Jacques. Did you almost forget my name? No, I wanted to drag it out Mm -hmm. like radio announcer style. Toby, I feel like you've known me for more than 44 seconds and you still don't love me. (laughs) That's not fair. Kevin Byrne, (laughs) I have known you for 15 years in September. Long time, friend. Long time. It has been a long time. You and I met at the Goodman Theater as lowly interns in 2001. Mm -hmm. Whoa, you guys are old. (laughs) (laughs) Which is not what you're supposed to be saying. Just kidding. Uh, we, we're a little bit grayer, I guess, than when we first Seasoned, met. But paunchy, uh, yeah, more in shape. Saggy, I was going to say. You guys look great for being forty-five each. <laughs> Get out. Good job, Toby. Uh, Kevin, you're born and raised in Chicago. You're back here right now, but normally you're in Arizona. How did you get from A to B to A? What's the story? How did I end up in uh, in uh, sunny Tucson? Exactly. Oh my gosh, my grandpa's from Tucson. Really? Yeah. It's a, it's a lovely town. You should visit. 
Yeah. So, how did you get from A to B to A? Uh, yes, uh, it was uh, a position at the uh, the University of Arizona in uh, theater studies and in dramaturgy. Uh, moved there two years ago. Uh, yeah, almost exactly two years ago now. And um, was that a goal of yours though, uh, to get into education, higher ed? Yes, had been for for a very long time. Ever since, uh, really, since I was an undergrad, I will say, I, I realized that I come from a family of teachers, parents, my sister, um, others, and um, I always knew that I would find my way into that profession somehow, but also love of uh, the theater, of the stage, of performance uh, in all of its forms, and found a way of sort of combining those, uh, those, those two things. I feel like you'd be the cool teacher, the teacher um, that everyone likes. Yeah. Are you on Rate My Professor? Uh, <laughs> That's not what I thought you said, Toby. Well, you know, I will say I do have a couple of chili peppers under my belt. Um. <laughs> uh, but you're originally from Chicago. Did you did you go to opera when you were a kid here in town or what? Uh, no. Actually, um, I will say that I came to opera very late in life. and In fact, not until I was in my doctoral program wow. did I uh, start. So I was in my 20s when I really first discovered an interest and a love uh, for opera. What, what was it? You know, it, what it came from was um, I took a class called Opera as Drama by a professor, Judy Millis, out there and realized how applicable it was to theater studies. I mean, it was one of the things where these two kind of genres or disciplines had been separated out from each other, but I saw a lot of interplay between the two of them and, and are you speaking about literature and then the stage yes you, yeah okay. you know like like just to um, clarify sorry <laughs> sure, sure sure you know um like so uh bertolt brecht's beef with wagner and the the idea mm -hmm. of the gesamtkunstwerk so bless you there thank you um <laughs> Verfremdung's uh, effect. Oh um, exactly. So, yeah, why, disgusting. how, and why you can't really understand Brecht unless you understand Wagner, and then so understanding Wagner, um, and then getting to the music and how that affects staging. Uh, and also, it's really wonderful from my perspective as a, an educator and someone who teaches theater history is opera is a great tool for. Uh, looking at the different aesthetic movements throughout time. Excellent point. So yeah. you can do something like, and, and this is something that I actually employ in, in my class and something that I, I stole from my wife, who's also a teacher, uh, is you look at um, the magic flute. You look at uh, Mozart and how it was staged, you know, the Baroque version of it versus the Romantic era staging of it and all the way up to something like Julie Tamer's version of it and how each different era is able to take that story and take those images and um, they look so vastly different because they're reflective of of the various uh, eras and time periods. So that, that for me, you know, kind of having an analytical brain and um, that was kind of my entree into sort of learning to appreciate opera and learning to love opera on sort of an emotional level that actually came even a little bit later and I and we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit when we talk about um, Lorena Hunt Lieberson's work 
Um, well, that was the question that we asked you was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to kind of put you on on the proverbial desert island and yep. and have you bring up a, a style of music or an artist that, you know, particularly moved you. And who did you come up with? Yeah, it was uh, Lorraine Hunt Lieberson's final recording, which was a recording of Handel Arias that she uh, put out, I think, shortly before or even maybe after she passed in 2006. And it was... It was an emotional experience for me listening to that music. Yes, part of it had to do with sort of her biography mm-hmm. and the fact that I knew mm-hmm. that it was her kind of, you know, kind of recordings and these types of things. That that was part of it, but then also how the music was able to move beyond maybe the uh, the analytical or the historical and become something that was much more that very deeply felt and very moving for me personally. So for you, being a dramaturg, though, hearing that music moved you so much and you were able to remove, uh, it was just because of the music that you were moved so much, is what I hear you saying. Like, it was the beauty of it. It was the way that it felt. It wasn't so much the background or that it was hmm. Handel. Yeah, exactly. And, and and I had listened to Handel before. I had, I, I had owned most of my and maybe this is different from the rest of you, and I would like to kind of get your perspectives on this, but I came to opera through recordings. It -hmm. wasn't through attending operas. It wasn't to going to see them live or to watching recordings of them, uh, you know, watching videos of them. It was through audio recordings of, of the music itself. And so I had listened to, you know, from a wide variety of sort of time periods and eras and styles and composers. And I had a, a, a Xerxes by by Handel, and I listened to it. And it's you know it's like three full CDs long, and man, it it, it sure seemed pretty draggy to me. <laughs> like it just it just it was like the same thing, you know, the bum 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 bum, yeah. da da da, and then okay, there you go, and That's then a, it's a good impersonation. Oh, Thank you very good. I was Thank you. Really that was my that. Oh, I got that my Handel my... out of the way for the year. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that thanks. My, that was my heart. Spark support. notes, Handel. Um. And it was like that for 75 minutes, you know, like it just seemed like it was just that. Mm-hmm. Um, I've taken the best naps during Handel. <laughs> Truly <laughs> quality naps. <laughs> and I sat in next to people taking naps. <laughs> I hope it wasn't no, me. And if I no, did, I'm sorry. Wait, I feel like <laughs> this is supposed to be the story about how you fell in love with it. And now we're like making <laughs> fun mad, of it. I'm so sorry, sorry well, Kevin. No, but that is important. <laughs> this is when our guest leaves us. That's <laughs> important, though, because it was kind of like PU. This this is this is kind of opera music. Um and then I listened to this recording and realized something about like pre-Mozart opera, I would say, that was much mm-hmm. more that it could be uh, moving, it could be sensual, it could be uh, sprightly, it could be deeply spiritual, and it could it could be affecting to me to to listen to it Mm -hmm. and it was through that recording and through her interpretations of these songs that that made me understand that and then i could go back and it you know kind of like a a gateway uh recording (laughs) gateway recording uh this whole world and so then i was able to understand and you know get through something like 
like Persol or so like it did send Luther. you down the, it did send you down a, a certain path yes okay yes yes it did and, and it so did. have you expanded though your catalog it, it, with what you love to listen to now like do you I'm sure you appreciate but do you do you love Verdi or Puccini for or instance Debussy? Stuff like that. Um, Just out of curiosity. Sorry. Yeah, you, you know, you know what I would say that what I what I listen to and, and love um, is is Mozart and some some Handel arias by Liebson and uh, Daniel Denise, um, and then I, I the 20th century stuff. I mean, I'm a big fan of a lot of. Uh, operas come out of you know Benjamin Britten, yeah. you know, Peter Grimes, Nixon in China. You're on the two ends of the spectrum there. Yeah, I know, I really? know. I, really I, it's, it's weird. I, I, I've never kind of the the the, the big repertoire. Mm-hmm. It it just doesn't you know it just doesn't really it doesn't hit me in the same in the same way. Well, let's take a little listen to some of the Lieberson recording here. Again, this is Opera Box Score. You can give us a ring in the studio. 847-866-9687. Let us know how you got into opera. Was it by listening to recordings? Was it by seeing shows? This is what Oliver Camacho had to say about Lorraine Hunt Lieberson. When George told me that our guest was going to be Kevin Byrne, we wanted to know what some of Kevin Byrne's favorite recordings were so that we could insert some music into this broadcast. He replied that he was a fan of Lorraine Hunt Lieberson and especially of her last recording with Harry Bigot and the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment, which features uh, arias by Handel. And that made me think that we should listen to some of Lorraine Hunt Lieberson. I had the opportunity of hearing Lorraine Hunt Lieberson in recital at Ravinia Festival in 2004, a recital which was turned into a recording and was released by Harmonia Mundi. Just two years later, Lorraine Hunt Lieberson would give her last performances in the Chicago area with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra conducted by Michael Tilson Thomas in Mahler's Second Symphony. And then she lost her battle with breast cancer in July of 2006. We just heard the first stanza of Zeit ich ihn gesehen, the song that opens the song cycle Frauen Liebe und Leben by Robert Schumann that was recorded live at Wigmore Hall in 1999. I'd like to continue with another one of Lorraine Huntleyberson's recordings from the 90s. This is from Purcell's The Fairy Queen, 
Uh, this is the song Ye Gentle Spirits, recorded in 1993 under Roger Norrington. Two great clips there. Certainly in that first one, uh, when she's singing in German, you can really hear the diction of those words. It's by far the hardest operatic language to sing in uh, German. And then with that uh, personal clip, it's that much more virtuosic side, the technical side of it. I mean, Kevin, what are you responding to when you hear music like that? You know, I, again, I'm, I'm not a musicologist. Uh, I have not studied. No, no, you're a human being. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh no <laughs> uh, goodbye <yeah>. musicologists <laughs> thank you for listening thank briefly for <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and I, I have not studied singing um, and so I, I can only respond to this in terms of emotion and but that's perfect feeling and well thank you and and it's there's it's 90% of it right there yes you know and, and I agree and, you know, same thing with any type of uh performance you know dance or theater and it's it's there's a, a spareness and a, a clarity to those and even if you don't speak German or know what's happening in the personal that is entirely secondary in those recordings to the resonances within those well, you, you listen to the first piece in the and the Schumann and it's you don't have to know what she's speaking about to hear a rich, you deep, know. amber color. Yeah, you can um, tell. Or when in the second recording when she sings, appear, appear. I mean, mm-hmm. you don't have to know context to know that there's an urgency uh, that excites you as a listener. Mm-hmm. And like, I mean, that's what that's what music's all about, is it not? You don't mm-hmm. want to listen and say, oh, I love how she raised her soft palate there. <laughs> and that's why, that's why when you I said... I don't even know where the soft palate is. <laughs> but I mean, you say you, you don't respond as a musicologist, mm-hmm. and that's what we're interested in, what drew you into these recordings specifically. So I, th- I appreciate, you know, uh, you sharing that. Mm-hmm. I have to say, I could listen to Purcell all day, every day. I don't know why, but he's that he's that one composer that I can never get enough of. Isn't that like a Jerzumba class? 
Did you listen to him? <laughs> it, no, not that Zumba class. It's at the um, the Palm Squad class that I listened to. Him. <laughs> if we do the personal Palm Squad, you know, if yeah. you but if you listen to like the opening of Dido and Aeneas. Oh my gosh! Don't get me started. I can't. It's it, it's beautiful. I I, I I I get I I end up in tears. You know, just or the last one, oh, the yeah, last no. the um uh with drooping wings. Yeah, that is gorgeous, incredible. Right after the break, we've got one more clip. It's from um. Lorraine Hunt-Lieberson singing a Handel aria. Opera box score is what is in your ear holes right now. 89.3 FM, WNUR. Free, non-invasive tests are being held that can help reduce or relieve neurological pain in conditions such as MS, post-stroke, fibromyalgia, and Parkinson's disease. It has also been found to help reflex sympathetic dystrophy. To schedule your free test or get more information, call 847-849-3499. That's 847-849-3499. These events are sponsored by the Foundation for Wellness Professionals, a nonprofit organization. Once again, the number is 847-849-3499. Over 20,000 people in Chicagoland are affected by HIV and AIDS. Many live in poverty and need food. Open Hand Chicago's programs provide nutritious meals to over 1,000 people each week. Volunteers deliver hot meals to homebound clients or pack weekly supplies of groceries for clients who can prepare their own meals. Give the gift of time. Call Open Hand Chicago at 773-665-1000 today to volunteer or go to www.openhandchicago.org on the web. Pedestrians are funny people. They jump out at you when you least expect it. For safety tips drivers and pedestrians all need to know, visit aaos.org, a public service message from the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. We're back on Opera Box Score. Thanks for joining us, 89.3 FM, WNUR. George Cedarquist here with Tobias Wright. I am still here. And Giovanna Jacques. And our special guest, guest co-host this week from the city of Chicago uh, and now Arizona as well, Kevin Byrne. We are in the middle of listening to the uh, selection that Kevin brought onto the show from one of his favorite albums uh, recorded by Lorraine Hunt-Lieberson. And here, as Oliver will explain, is a clip from Handel's Theodora. Well, that's what I would be saying if I hit the right button. That was something we've already heard about before. Uh, but while we wait for me to recue the music, Kevin, tell us about this handle piece and what speaks to you about it. You know, uh, uh, it's the the simpleness of it, the spareness of it, and the fact that you can you br- you bring it brings emotion out of you it kind of almost pulls this thing in, again not in a, in a cheap a melodramatic way but from kind of deep within you it it, it pulls up and stirs emotions within you in, in in such a wonderful uh and evocative way i mean that's um that's what this recording did for for me upon upon first hearing let's hear oliver's take i think you're going to find it's a very similar take actually and then we'll listen to the clip 
find tributes to Lorraine Hunt-Lieberson and her career, uh, you can find an essay by Alex Ross from The New Yorker, uh, a segment on the podcast version of Fresh Air by Lloyd Schwartz, their classical music critic. And you can look for an essay called Remembering Lorraine Hunt-Lieberson from the Archives of Chicago Symphony Orchestra, written by Frank Villella. What I have to contribute to those accolades is that she was a galvanizing singer in the early music community. This is a singer who had amazing musicianship and a tone quality that was so recognizable. And most importantly, uh, a singer who really understood how to phrase. And that is something that we singers talk about, we musicians talk about, and it's one of those things that's really hard to explain but there's just something about the way Lorraine Hunt shapes the music and really finds the important moments uh, in a phrase and emphasizes them. And sometimes does this thing with a slide or like a portamento that really emphasizes the notes between the notes and plays with the tuning and sometimes just opens up the sound to let more tone come out and sometimes is really restrained to make the tone much more uh, centered around the pitch. Uh, there's many things that she does with her voice that really uh, indicates that she was a brilliant musician and approaches sometimes the singing with an instrumental quality, but also has a very human sound, almost a tragic sound in her voice. Lorraine Hunt began her singing career as a soprano, and when she was singing soprano, there was this really interesting kind of tangy edge to her voice. But even as a soprano, her voice had this rich quality and access to lower tones that were just very soulful sounding and reminds one of the sound of a viola da gamba. My personal anecdote about Lorraine Hunt Lieberson was the time that me and a bunch of early music singers were huddled around my computer screen watching YouTube videos of various singers and we were taking requests and watching various arias and things and somebody wanted to watch the video of Lorraine Hunt Lieberson singing Irene's aria from the opera or the oratorio Theodora by Handel. This is a very iconic video of the aria as with Rosie Steps from the production directed once again by Peter Sellers. It's a beautiful, beautiful video. It's hypnotic, and Lorraine Hunt's voice is glorious in this. I just remember being with my colleagues and sitting around this computer listening with this crappy sound, but how we were all really just mesmerized by her grace, uh, by the sound of her voice, by her musicianship. And when it was over, we all stayed quiet and looked at each other and just swallowed the lumps that were in our throats. And I just knew that we all felt the same thing listening to her sing. Lorraine Hunt went into the studio to record Irene's arias uh, late in her career uh, with Harry Pickett and the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment, and we'll close with the Da Capo section of As With Rosie Steps, The Morn, from Theodora.
It's true. When you hear that, you really don't want to move a muscle. And that production by Peter Sellers of Theodora is, is incredible. It's one of the first DVDs I ever watched of an opera. That was beautiful. So, Kevin, what are you thinking when you're hearing that kind of stuff? I mean, you said hey, this is stuff that would be your desert island, you know. Um, does it excite you? Does it just make you feel lush, like peaceful? Because I, I know that for me, when I listen to awesome stuff that I'm passionate about, I freak out a little bit. <laughs> and I, you know, sometimes I stand up and throw things with excitement. But so what are you thinking when you're hearing this? You know, I, I don't know what you're what you believe in spirituality, religion, but it's not that it's going to make a convert out of you. But that music, it it brushes up against the divine in such uh, a, a pure way that um it exceeds the boundary of language to explain. That's beautifully put. It's the bottom of the hour on Opera Box Score. 89.3 FM, WNUR in Evanston, Chicago. Number in the studio, 847-866-9687. Give us a call. Let us know what's on your mind. Kevin Byrne, live in studio with us. He is an assistant professor of dramaturgy at the University of Arizona. Kevin, you've talked a little bit about how you got into opera, how this all synthesized for you. Can you explain in 30 seconds or less what a dramaturg actually is? Yeah, uh, sure. And, and, and if this could be your PSA because I think it is something that is <laughs> oh, good. widely <laughs> Because widely I, I really would rather have done the one about alcoholism. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a wildly misunderstood position, I think, here uh, in the United States. Um, and when people think about what a dramaturg is on a production in general, on a live production that's uh, as a member of the, the design or the artistic team, um, sometimes they talk about them as being uh, the researcher or the historian on the production. Um, usually they're seen as sort of an intermediary, someone that crosses between sort of the director and the designer, is their intermediary between the production and the public. Usually that's what he, she does um, often on a show. Uh, but in a, a sort of a larger sense, and, and why I really fervently believe that a dramaturg is sort of a necessary position and an artistic one on, on a production, you know, theater and, and, and opera as well, uh, is, is dramaturg is a person who questions, uh, is the interlocutor, um, and is also is a person who has the ability, if you're, if you're good at it, to, to provoke conversation that you get other people to ask questions as well. Ask questions, questions about what in particular? Um, about... Do you ever get on Reddit? Uh, what it, it, do what you know what Reddit, Reddit is? What is Reddit? You should get on Reddit and do well, ask me no, anything. Yeah, well, Why no, there's not ask me, not even ask me anything. Is it's like explain I, oh. to me like I'm seven. <laughs> Sorry. So what are you? What is the conversations? What are the conversations you're trying to get other people to have? As well? Um, you're trying to get people to understand. Okay, what is the message of this show? What is the relevancy of this show? Uh, why this production now? is a question that dramaturgs frequently ask. And, and sometimes uh, designers, even director, and certain, you know, the actors, they got their, their, their job to do. You know, they got to hit their marks. They got to learn their lines. They got to you know, put on the costume. You know, they have their job to do. But, like, getting these artists to say, okay, let's think 
structurally and let's think about message and meaning for for the show. And and it, just having someone asking those questions and gathering materials to help get people excited about the relevancy of the show that's kind of uh, what the drama But do you feel does. like there there's an intersection between the dramaturg and the singer in an opera setting because it seems to me that the dramaturg really intersects with the yeah. director Yeah well the, the director and and the 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 artistic team the designers in fact it, it it's considered to be kind of a a, a, a faux pas to um is that is my, how's my french that's pretty good. Really? You're, we'll go with it. Full packs? What are we, okay. No, no, you're great. Okay. You're great. You're doing a great job. Thank you. Sehr gut. Oh, wait. Wrong language. Wrong language. Okay, thank you. Keep going. Okay. Um, it's that you do. Good job, George. I'm proud of you. I'm sorry this is radio because it requires your your Mario and Luigi hand gestures to make that work, tomatoes. George. Um, okay. It, it's that you don't because they're looking for direction from the director that that should be coming from one single voice. Mm-hmm. If you interact directly with uh, the singers or the onstage talent, that can sort of muddle the water. You have to really walk this fine line, don't yeah. you? Between like staying out of it and you running know what, the risk of just not me, contributing, it, but it, then you know, like it, getting too involved. That kind of made me feel like as a singer, I wasn't supposed to have my own independent thoughts. No, 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 it's not a person who makes a, the costume designer, the set designer, the lighting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, makes the final decision. The dramaturg steps in and says, well, why are we doing it this way? Why did you choose that? Why are you positioning these people this way? Why did you choose that lighting, et cetera, et cetera? So to get them to sort of clarify their own thinking, alter their viewpoints, uh, and make that the overall sort of strong message of, of, mm-hmm. of the production uh, clearer to, to everyone involved and then, of course, ultimately to the audience. And Kevin, you've spent some time in Berlin, so you have a, a sense of the European style, mm-hmm. the European aesthetic, and the European use of the dramaturg. It, it seems to me that it is kind of a different beast in Europe, you know, specifically in German-speaking Europe. I mean, what's, what's your experience been, and, and how would you compare and contrast dramaturgy in the U.S. versus dramaturgy in Europe? You know that's a, that's a great question, and, and there's a there's a wonderful book that just came out um, called the 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 Routledge Companion to Dramaturgy. You know? It's on my list for Hanukkah. Well, I'll, you know, it's not exactly <laughs> beach reading, but um, it is sort of a wonderful um, compendium of, of what's what is dramaturgy in the 21st century, um, and you know, certainly I would say in uh, in Europe. Uh, you know, dramaturgy started in Germany, and we don't have to get into the historical background of it. We can think about the here and now. Um, but certainly it's much better established in Europe, this position, as part of a company, an institution, and certainly on, on a particular production that you, that you have a dramaturg. It's almost, you know, of course, if you need a set designer, you need to have a dramaturg. And, and that's right. something that I do right. that I very fervently be- believe in. 
Um, the U.S. It's 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 less you know again understood. It's it's less common to have a dramaturg. Um, but I, why I think, do you think that is? You know, I I think that there's um, probably budgetary part of it, right? Budgetary certainly, as we all know, in terms of uh, and certainly longtime listeners of this, of this show know that. Uh, the, the sponsorship of opera companies, theater companies, performance companies in Europe is certainly kind of uh, much more substantial. Um, but actually, I would say that that almost means that a dramaturg is even more vital in the United States for many reasons. Because hmm. if you're dependent upon or you're relying upon box office and ticket sales, because the dramaturg is the one who acts as this this conduit of discussion between the production and the audience. I mean, they write the program notes, they make the lobby displays, they're the one who are doing the talkbacks, these types of things. So they're kind of, you know, they're putting together the website. They are the one that really speaks to an audience. And so if you want to build that audience, if you want to retain and, and grow an audience, find a younger audience, um, that's something that uh, a dramaturg can really help with but but this is a it's a it's it's a worldwide i mean it's not just sort of us v europe and, hmm. and we can put that kind of uh, dichotomy out there but but you know th there's really wonderful sort of dramaturgical work happening in latin america uh, mexico brazil hmm. argentina uh happening in australia japan i mean all these new ways of conceptualizing Theater, and we are, we are definitely in a, a sort of a new era for for theater and and for performance. Um, and this, the, I think, this will bleed into our 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 Met discussion in a bit. Um, that a dramaturg can help sort of facilitate the movement into this this new way of thinking. And so, yeah, there are these other places around the globe that are doing some really really fantastic work, and that dramaturgs are integral to our. our, our seen as a necessary element. It's a good segue, a, Kevin, that uh, our segment on the Met HD is coming up right after the break. They've been around for 10 years now. The live broadcast of live opera in the movie theater. Is it something that's been helping the art form or is it something that basically just needs to go away? Stick around on Opera Box Score, which is on WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago. We're coming up right after the break. We're listening to WNUR Evanston, and this is the best of WNUR programming. More and more babies in America are being born dangerously early, so early their lives hang in the balance. Despite the best medical care, thousands don't get through the first month. Premature birth is growing at an alarming rate. It affects one in eight babies. The March of Dimes funds research to give all babies a fighting chance. Help the March of Dimes stop the crisis of premature birth. For information or to help, go to marchofdimes.com. The baby we save may be your own. Did you know that the average age when kids start to use drugs is between 13 and 14? The good news is that kids who learn a lot about the risks of drugs from their parents are half as likely to use drugs. So you need to start talking. Not sure what to say? The Partnership for a Drug-Free America's Illinois affiliate, Prevention First, has free brochures, posters, and other materials for parents, teachers, and anyone who wants to keep our kids from using drugs. For help, 
go to prevention.org. A message from Prevention First and WNUR. 55% of candidates for statewide office report spending at least one out of every four of their waking hours raising money for their campaigns. 23% report spending more than half their time raising money. Public Campaign is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to sweeping reform that aims to dramatically reduce the role of special interest money in America's elections and the influence of big contributors in American politics. To learn more, visit www.publiccampaign.org. That's P U B L I C A M P A I G N. This message brought to you by WNUR. Opera Class. Sports Radio Crass. This is Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Tobias Wright, and Giovanna Jacques. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. That is indeed the show. George Cedarquist here with Tobias Wright. I'm excited for this Chalk Talk, George. Let's and do Giovanna it. Jacques. I'm passionate about this subject. Let's go. And Dr. Kevin Byrne. I brought my hat. Doc, <laughs> here's what you need to know about the Met Opera broadcasts. Um, they are shown in more than 2,000 movie theaters around the world. Almost 3 million people watch them. Brings in $18 million a season for the Metropolitan Opera. And they're about to hit the 100 performance mark later this season with a broadcast of Tristan Unisolda. I will be honest and say that I went to my first Met in HD broadcast earlier in, I guess it was technically 2016, it was in January, with Oliver, of all people, I went to see the Pearl Fishers, and I had an absolute blast, but am I the only one having such a good time? Am I the only person who thinks this is a great idea? I'm going to lay my cards out there right away. Our guest, you get to speak first. The Met in HD broadcast, is it time to get rid of them? What's the problem, or do we keep going? You know, I, I think there are the kind of two um, two questions that... Uh, that we're wrestling with with uh, on this uh, subject, and certainly in the the article um, that that you had us sort of look at for for this. Uh, kind and of that article is also this. on the website operaboxscore.squarespace.com. Yeah, from Annie Midget. It was in the uh, Washington Post, I believe. Uh, and one has to do with um, it really focused on the idea of sort of technology and sort of live events and whether or not uh, this is a good thing or a bad thing, um, these broadcasts. And the other thing has to do with, with uh, the quality of the work that's being put on by, uh, by the Met, particularly under the, you know, the leadership of, of Peter Gelb, and kind of setting the, that aesthetic question aside a little bit and just focusing on this HD technology. Um, yeah, I got to say, I mean, it, it, it's this idea between technology and live events, this is like a centuries-old dilemma. I mean, you know, right. like going back to the beginning of silent film, people were wondering and worrying about how this technology was going to sort of replace Oh, live. prior to that, at the Bayreuth Festival with Wagner's uh, works being performed, there was all about the interplay between music and technology. Sure. And, you know, whether or not this was going to sort of take the place of or replace or get rid of, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, um, you know, I, I got to say that I think that for whatever limitations are brought up by, by these things, I think in terms of just the idea of accessibility of these operas, it is a very, very sort of beneficial thing. I mean, you know, yes, you give up maybe some of the article talks about the quote, like the, the thrill of the live event. Um, and yes, you are 
sacrificing some of that, obviously, um, but for the sake of allowing it to sort of reach a new and sort of not exactly not new but a wider audience people that don't have the money they don't have the time they don't have the ability well, to, to get to uh the the opera house and one you know, you know and one of the things that the article talks about too is that you know that one of the dangers is that it may not be reaching a new audience and bringing in new listeners and new lovers of opera but it might just be another vehicle for people who are already hooked on the art form to go see it and i have to say that as as someone who loves the art form um and has gone to multiple broadcasts i i don't know that it's i i love the broadcast and that they're there and that the music is available and we are all champions of that on this show what it what for me it suffers in the fact that it's not going to the live theater it's yeah. not the same thing and i have to say that if my first experience with opera was going to a met and hg broadcast i don't know that i would have fallen in love with it the same as you know if my first opera experience was going to see tosca live at an old theater well when you add the cameras in right you add all the camera angles and the article touches on this as well it's it doesn't become a, a live show anymore it's zoomed in it's taken from all these different angles there's so much more drama added to it whereas when you're at the live show there's there's the smell, there's, there are all the side sounds and everything, and it's just not the same experience. So then, Toby, are you saying that it's basically false advertising? Um, yeah, kind of. I don't know that I think it's false advertising as much as I think it's more, it's a different production. It's the same product, it's a different production. It's the movie version. But in a way, it it really demystifies the art form, right? Like, the whole problem with opera is, like, the building of the opera house itself. I've been on that horse for months hammering that thing, is that we're all trying to get opera out of the opera house. So if we can't do that, at least we can try and make the opera house itself a more approachable place. And I think sitting in a movie theater, like, watching on a screen makes it a little less scary. It helps you feel like you belong I'll agree with that. And And you you might actually want to go to a live And you can have your popcorn, and you can have your soda, and... popcorn ready Tobias (laughs) and I mean and so there is that and there is like you said it makes it more approachable and it makes it less scary because I know that uh, there are people you know sometimes I'll ask people like a Lyft driver Uber driver I always talk to them you know okay and you know have you ever seen an opera no and I never will go see an opera well why not because it happens at the opera Um, because I don't belong right exactly so there there is that that aspect of it um you know, the one thing, though, uh, they talked about it in the article as well, um, that, that the days of DVDs are numbered and uh, that streaming into homes is essentially what people want. Um, so do they continue to do the HD broadcast in the theaters um, or they try to drop it altogether or provide a free streaming? And then, uh, you know, the mention of YouTube and, and everything's for free on YouTube. And this is just... I don't know. This is I the social media, and when you go out to places now and you see people constantly um, nose in their phones, and their eyes aren't up on the sidewalk in front of them or the trees around them, and that always kind of bothers me. And then you think of the Met and HD, probably uh, the the fact that it could disappear because people now want it. First, they didn't want it in the theater, the, the live theater. They wanted it sent to them uh, via. Um, satellite into a movie theater broadcast and now we're going to move further away from that stream it into our homes for free just that is so gross it is so lazy and it's so cheap look music should not be free yeah that's what i'm saying um and that's why it's it's scary and a slippery slope to see what will happen here what the decisions will be you know in the future for the the broadcast if they decide to continue or not i thought another interesting point was the fact that it's just the met 
Well, you know, it, like, it's a small. Yeah. It's got to be. They, it's the small market, right? No, it is a small market for sure. But the Met isn't the only opera house in the U.S. putting on really, really incredible shows. Right, but they're the probably the only opera house that could even afford to to think about broadcasting the way in which they they do. And I think it talks about that a little bit, um, you know, with San Francisco, San Francisco Opera trying to do some streaming things and and whatnot. Well, Kevin, I don't know if you agree with me on this or not, but this is the problem. I think the, the mistake the Met made was this, is that they should have taken something from sports and they should have basically, if the opera that they were going to do an HD broadcast for mm-hmm. wasn't sold out in the theater, they should have blacked out <laughs> the telecast of it in New York, basically forcing people to go into the theater and buy a ticket and then and only then allowing people in New York City to see it on the screen. The rest of the country could see it on a screen, no problem, but just in New York. You know, I, I think that would lead to some uh, the the type of pushback to that. It would be some terrible, terrible process. I think that's a terrible idea. <laughs> Those opera fans would be in the streets! <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine that picket line. <laughs> but you know uh, Peter Gelb, who I who I I've met and genuinely like, uh, he said in this article, the Met is always a good excuse for those who aren't doing well. Interesting. Okay, go on. Well, I mean, what's your point with that? Well, I think like you know, haters gonna hate. Yeah, haters gonna hate. And that's hate, why hate, people, hate, haters gonna hate. hate. Of course, people are gonna hate the Met. And that's why I'm saying like the Met's the only one capable of doing the broadcast because you, you, haters are gonna hate. Like they're the only ones who could even conceive broadcasting to you know 200 different countries or whatever. You know it what is, else I'm you gonna know. say? You know, but but to get back to this idea about like camera angles and and kind of a little bit of the glitz and the razzle dazzle, I think this also goes along with what Gelb was doing when he brings in these new directors outside of the opera world who aren't doing the the old kind of classic park and bark style of opera staging. And I remember when, you know, because even the HD broadcast, you know, it's part of it is just advert advertisement for the Met, you know, getting, getting the name out there. And when Gelb took over in that first season, like the advertisements for the show, uh, like around New York were really exciting. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you had Natalie Desai in, um, Lucia de Lamamore and there she isn't, you know, like just like these really great striking images. So like the, 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 the advertising was really, really fantastic on, on that. And I think, the the productions and the, these new productions and these directors they're bringing in Tamor or Zimmerman or you know people from musical theater mm-hmm. or from film to teach, you know, I I saw it, man. I saw the the Zeffirelli Aida. Oh boy! And it was like I was like, oh sweet sassy <laughs> snore fest. It was like yeah, they, they bring what a third horse, I guess. Because <laughs> why I not? Yes. I guess we're just gonna we're gonna have a third horse because you know we have to uh, third time's a charm exactly that's when it really sort of um, nice trumpet Toby that was my Aida trumpet that was was, it was better than my that was my triumphal march. It was better than my trumpet playing. (laughs) Let us know what you think of the Met HD and broadcast. Is it time for them to go away? You can always email us operaboxscore at gmail.com. Right now, it's time for the two minute drill. This just in, the two-minute drill. 
Time for the fastest headlines in opera news. Everything you need to know in two minutes tops. Bavarian Prime Minister Horst Seehofer has called off the state reception for the opening of the Bayreuth Festival on Monday as a mark of respect for victims and families of the Munich attack. The celebrity red carpet catwalk will also be scrapped. Seehofer and other political leaders have notified the festival that in present circumstances they cannot attend. John Barry, the former English national opera boss, has been named creative advisor to the Bolshoi Theater, working with its general director, Vladimir Uren. The job will be part-time, enabling Barry to develop other projects, both his co-productions and standalones. After a 28-year run of the most classic Broadway show of all time, the New York production of Phantom of the Opera has made history this year by recruiting the first Asian-American Christine, Ali Avolt. Together with Jordan Donica, these two new faces officially took to the stage in Broadway's Phantom on June 13th. Some of the country of Georgia's leading opera singers have launched a campaign against its opera chief, who they say has only put on three productions in two years. Singers have put their names to a document which describes David Kintsugarashvili, artistic director of the Tbilisi State Theater, as, quote, unprofessional. He's dismissed the protest as a, quote, conspiracy against him. Built as a gift from China, Algeria's first opera house has just opened. It will stage orchestral and traditional dance performances, but no actual opera. Heard of Robert Mellon? He's a professional baseball umpire and is also singing in an upcoming production of Bizet's Carmen at the Port Opera in Oregon. That's the two-minute drill. Kevin, what did you find fascinating about those little nuggets? Phantom's still running? (laughs) (laughs) It'll never go away. (laughs) Um, No, I mean, that's great. I mean, this is in line with, um, I think, a lot of uh, the the new diversifying of the stage. I think that this is, it's an interesting move. I hope it is not a form of um, yellow face. You know, I just hope that it's not like, just kind of slapping, you know, people of color into traditionally white shows and thinking that that's a statement. I, mm-hmm. you know. I don't know, Kevin. It's, I think it's about time. Mm, yeah, it's about time what? that we see someone else than white people on Broadway. Then we see someone oh, else I think than that's white people. Yeah, know, yeah, no, I'm, I, saying, saying. I'm saying, I'm saying that it's not, it's, it's like, I don't agree that it's a, um, it's just to put people of color. Like, I think, I think it's actually, it could very well be an Asian Christine. Mm-hmm. It could be. Um, not written. I am. Can I respond? Mm-hmm. No. Tobias. Um, the country of Georgia has an opera chief. <laughs> can we get one of those in the United Dude, States? It's in Eastern Europe. I'm not quite sure why you're surprised. It's just, you are the opera chief. Hey, Kevin. what's your dad do? He's the opera chief. He's the opera chief. <laughs> He's the chief His name of the is really opera. Really hard to pronounce. Sorry, that was my response to two minute drill. <laughs> that, was, that was so pithy. I'm sorry. We had it's to good. light it up a little bit. Yeah, it's good. Uh, Javada, your turn. I was really struck by the by the by the Asian thing. I was still going on yeah, the soapbox yeah, over yeah, here. Yeah. I'm keeping talking, but you muted my microphone, so no one knows that I kept going. What? Hmm? Nothing. No, just let it go. I, I don't understand. What about Robert Mellon, the umpire, who's singing in Carmen? Yeah, I've heard that story before, though. That's that's no big deal anymore. No oh, big really? Deal. People, no people pe- like doing multiple. It's basically someone doing two jobs. Maybe that's how I'm going to start marketing is, myself. Hey, did jobs. you guys hear about that server who sang the world premiere? Ah. <laughs> wait, wait, you mean Tobias Rice was here? <laughs> He's one of the best servers in Chicago. <laughs> you probably yeah, would be. He's uh, a double threat. Nice. <laughs> <laughs>
Thanks, we're gonna, Master. We're going to wrap this show up with our uh, good call, bad call segment. Make sure you're sticking around on Opera Box Score and WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Well, it's been quite a show. Kevin Byrne, what a total pleasure to have you yes. here. Yes. I love being here. You get to go first. Do you have a good call or a bad call this oh, week? Oh, boy, do I have a bad call. It's quite a doozy. The bad call is for Donald J. Trump and the Republican National Convention for using a Pavarotti recording from Turando <laughs> during to hype up the crowds, oh, leading to a cease and desist order yes. from his uh, from Pavarotti's estate and heirs saying Pavarotti. <laughs> stands for everything that you dump upon. Um, so <laughs> that, that is my upon. bad call. That's a great bad call. That's a call. really good bad call. Good job, Kevin. Joe, you knocked one out of the park. That was good. Javada Jacques. It's hard to follow that one. Mine's pretty boring. Go for it. Um, Placido Domingo's Operalia competition ended on Sunday night and was won by French soprano Elsa Dreisig and South Korean tenor Kwonwoo Kim. It's awesome. Well, we've got Pavarotti, we've got Domingo. So you're going to say something about Carreras, right, Tobias? Yes, I am going to talk about Carreras and how much he would have enjoyed the Coldplay concert that I went to last night. That's my good call. I went Thanks to Coldplay. Thanks for inviting me, Toby. Hey, um, I had a date. I'm sorry. It was oh, fantastic. Tobias, can I ask, did you get a complimentary packet of mayonnaise on the way out? <laughs> no, but I... I <laughs> I just got that. <laughs> well, this was our last show ever of Off the Box Store. That is certainly it for tonight's show. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. It's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. For WNUR, our programming director is Nick Anderson, and the general manager is Brock Stussy. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for Opera Box Score. Be sure to like our Facebook page, and if you know people who would enjoy our show, help us spread the word by sharing our posts. On our website, operaboxscore.squarespace.com, you can stream archived episodes and learn more about our team, and you can always email us at operaboxscore at gmail.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast version of our show on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Leave a review and let us know what you want to hear more of on our show. We're back with our podcast on Monday, August 1st, 9 p.m. Central, when podcaster and baritone Mathen Black joins us once again. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. Special thanks to our guest co-host Kevin Byrne. For Tobias Wright and Giovanna Jacques, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera with the aircon running on high. Street Beat is up next. You're listening to WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, Chicago Sound Experiment. <laughs>